Okay, now, back over to 1 Timothy, the second chapter. This is where we left off. 1 Timothy, chapter 2. So Paul is encouraging this young man, uh, and he says this, he says, I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. It's interesting, he has four categories here. Requests. Number one, request obviously is, has the in, uh, implication of just, just stuff that you desire, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and the scriptures constantly encourages whatever you desire from God, ask him, ask him, ask him, ask him. Then prayers, separate from request kind of prayers, but prayers where you just offer up prayers for others and, and that kind of thing. Intercession, this is when you stand in the gap for somebody else, like we were just doing for the Christians. We were interceding for them wasn't anything specifically for us, but they're in a time of need, so we stand in the gap and we intercede, those kinds of prayers. And then thanksgiving also, when, when part of prayer is coming to God with thankfulness. You say, well, why would thankfulness be? Because when you get to a place of faith, where you're absolutely sure, and you know in your heart that God has heard you and the answer's on its way, you can't help but be thankful. Okay? Um, uh, an analogy I've used many, many, many times, I probably will until I'm a really old geezer, is uh, uh, one time in my life when I was in real trouble, we were just, you know, we weren't married very long and incredibly young and unbelievably stupid and unfathomably broke. And uh, I remember we were like, I forgot, $100 short or something, which at the time was like, you know, the world was coming to an end and just freaking out and and uh, I remember my, my mom had called or something like that and I was talking to her she said well how are things going and I said well we're having kind of a hard time what's the problem well we need a hundred dollars for this da, 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 da. she said don't worry about it I'll send you a hundred bucks okay and I hung up and immediately a weight was lifted off of me I was happy as could be I was thank thank you mom thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you God bless moms okay so now what had changed nothing I was still broke. The circumstances were exactly the same. Nothing had, the only thing that had changed is I got a promise from mom. And I knew she was good for her work. And sure enough, you know, a few days later, here comes the money and, and we got ourselves out of our, the little hole that we were in. And, uh, and faith is like that. When you really get to a place where you know God has heard you. And I'll tell you, it's one thing to be able to say, Jack, you can depend on mom. But, you know, God's a lot more dependable than mom. As wonderful as you moms are. Okay, no insult to moms. But I mean, this is, when you come to, to a place of prayer and you are so tuned in and you know what you know what you know about God and about the word of God and about promises and you come, then thanksgiving is a natural part of prayer because it's like when you connect with God, then thank you God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Even though nothing has changed yet. You see what I'm talking about? That's faith. And a lot of us, a lot of people will all thank God when they get the answer. Well, that's not faith. That's just, that's normal. You know, that's easy. Anybody can do that. But to get to a place of celebrating your answer before you get your answer, that's cool. And that's real faith. That's where you need to get. So he's talking about these four different types of prayer. Requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. And he says, I'm urging that these be made for everyone. And he starts talking about for kings and for all those in authority. This is where we get the scripture encouragement to pray for our political leaders and that sort of thing. Uh, and what's interesting, the main reason to pray for them is so that they leave us alone. <laughs> is what he says here. Pray for the king's authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In other words, that they will just leave us alone. 
Now, they were living in a time when authority could get very intense and, and they would fight Christianity big time and there were times and waves of persecution would come. People would be, you know, hauled up you know, to the lions and, 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 and horrible things. Or people would be imprisoned or uh, sold off as slaves. I mean, all kinds of terrible things that they would go through. Uh, it wasn't like that continually, but there were certain waves of persecution that they would suffer. And uh, in those days, uh, political authority could be very oppressive and stuff. And so he says, man, pray that we can just live quietly and peacefully without those guys bugging us. We don't have quite the same problem today, but uh, let us not be fooled. We need to pray for our country and stuff that we can continue to enjoy the freedoms God has blessed us with. Because there are always people wanting to take away those liberties. Always have, they always will. And uh, uh, it, it is important for a country, if we're going to keep what we have, we have to stay vigilant. And they package it in all kinds of different ways that they want to take away your freedoms. But be alert. Bottom line, they're still wanting to take away our freedoms. And we need to be careful. Uh, and I don't have all the answers on that. I know God does. And we need to pray. I'll tell you, just, um, you know, our, our marriage ministry has its own little plan that we take most of the time. Uh, but, you know, we, we went commercial this time because there were a bunch of us that went. And uh, I tell you what, every time I go through that, it, it is, I can't help but feel that these people, the terrorists at some level have won already. You know what I'm saying? Here we all are going through these lines. And I, I'm looking, I'm thinking, oh, how many white grandmas have really been terrorists in our country? You know, they're taking little old ladies and wands. Ooh, ee, ee, ooh, ee. You know, their metal bras are sending things off. You know, it's just, oh my gosh. You know, and the stuff we go through, and I just, oh, you know, liberties that we start losing. We need to be careful, even when fighting against these things, that we don't get a little too crazy. We start losing the freedoms we have. But these freedoms ultimately come from God, and we need to pray that God will continue to bless us and help us to walk in that kind of liberty. He says this is a good thing, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What does he mean? If Christianity is hindered, by kings and those in authority, then the gospel can't be preached and people can't get saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So uh, it, it pleases God that when, when we pray in this way so that this atmosphere is created, uh, so the gospel can be preached because he wants all men to be saved and everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now when he said there is one God, uh, he lived in a culture, and, and certainly one of the big things that they struggled against was uh, cultures where they had tons of gods. There were gods every which way but loose. And, uh, and this idea that there was just one god was pretty radical. Jews thought in those terms, but everybody else around them did not. And uh, so he's always underscoring the fact, look, there is only one god. And we need to stay focused on that. And then he said there is one mediator between god and men. What is he talking about? A mediator is one who stands in the gap, who mediates, who, who you know, uh, sticks up for you, who, who helps you out. Now, there is only one mediator between God and men. Now, this is important, and I'm not looking to pick a fight with anybody, certainly not trying to insult anybody uh, or your grandmas or anybody else. But one of the areas that I think traditional Christianity, mainline Christianity, uh, has, has taken a spin-off, and, and there's several of the denominations, I don't name them, but you'll recognize it as soon as I start talking about it, is this idea of praying to 
others to help you through. Praying to saints or praying to Mary or praying to Joseph or praying to this or to that or to that or the other. Asking them to help them through the situations. And I understand what they're trying to do. The problem is that kind of approach, which is pretty much the result of hundreds and thousands of years of history and tradition in some of these churches. Uh, The problem is it's blatantly unbiblical. The Bible says here, there is one mediator between God and you. There is one. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator you need to go through. Um, uh, You don't need to go talk to his mom. Okay, you don't need to talk to his buddies that were holier than you, but not, you know, quite as holy as he is. And and all, you know, we get this this layered uh, system of, of, of authority Uh, in our minds of of what heaven's like it's not that way there's one and it's really vitally important for you to understand that there's one mediator between God and men and that is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men he paid the price so that you could have forgiveness of sins so I could have forgiveness of sins he paid the ransom Um, he paid our debt as it were uh, and, and it's really phenomenal when, when, when you think about this. And, and I don't know how many times you've, you've heard this phrase, but when you think about what are you worth to God? What are you worth to God? And, you know, a lot of people we think, well, we're worth nothing because we're just people and we make mistakes and we're a bunch of slime balls. And, you know, God, you know, puts up with us because he has to. Or I don't, sometimes we get some of the goofiest thinking. But the reality is you can tell what something is worth by what someone is willing to pay for it. Right? I mean, you really want to see what something's worth? You know, go on uh, eBay. That's what, you know what I'm saying? Because that's when you find out what is it really worth? What is somebody really willing to pay for this item? Now, if this little stand here, if we put this up for auction right now, we would find out pretty shortly what it's worth to you people, Right? Uh, we could start with a dollar. How many things this is worth a dollar? I don't know. We could have a big auction going in here. And, and at some point, we'll hit a number where nobody else wants to pay any more than that. And that's what the, what the item is worth, what somebody is willing to pay. So if this were to go because I touched it <laughs> for $10 million, which is pr- probably what it's worth right now, then what is this worth? Ten million dollars. I mean, somebody pays ten million. How do you know? You know, like they have these paintings. What is it worth? Well, somebody just paid ten million dollars. Holy stinking cow! You know, wow. Now it's not worth that to me, but you know what I'm saying. It's certainly worth it to the person who buys it. Um, so anyway, stop and think about this. What did God pay for you? Jesus. That's hard to really comprehend because of who we are and, and, and we seem so distant from spirituality sometimes and it's hard to understand what an incredible miracle grace is but you are worth Jesus to God because that is what he paid for you why would he care about you he knows you're not perfect why would he help you in your time of trouble uh, he knows who you are why because you're worth Jesus to God he paid this incredible ransom for you and for me. We have this value. We are part of the kingdom of God. So I don't feel like that. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what this thing feels. It's worth what it's worth. 
Okay? So this, when you start understanding who you are in Christ, what that value, it changes the way you think and it changes the way you pray. And the more you think about these things, the more it will transform your prayer life. If you really think, I mean a lot of people, I, I know they think like, you know, I, got, I know God, you're really busy and, and, uh, and uh, I need this help and please, you know, uh, you know, and you have no faith. You know, a lot of people, they're so afraid of God. Um, instead of coming to him as children, we're his children, okay? Because we've been redeemed, we've been bought with a price, we've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, we're worth Christ to God. Uh, it changes your, your status in life. It just does. Um, another story I've shared over and over again. You know, when I was a kid, whenever I had to go to see the doctor... Uh, I would just walk into the clinic and I would walk past all the people that were sitting there and I'd walk past the receptionist and I'd just walk in and see the doctor. Why? Because the doctor was my dad. And it was great. It was cool. I just walked past all the poor, you know, menial people in life and I'd wave it all. How y'all doing? Good to see you. And just walk right in. My dad would stop whatever whatever he was doing. Always would do that. Come see us. He'd give us whatever medicine we needed or check us out and stuff. And I would walk back and I'd walk past all the all poor little people who were not gungers. And, and, and walked on. Why could I do that? Because of something I did? Because I was so smart? Because I was so intelligent? I, no. For no other reason than he was my dad. And if there would be a reception of somebody who was new and they would stop me. Where, where do you think you're going? Oh, I'm going to go see my dad, Dr. Gunger. Oh, go ahead. You see, it changes the way that you approach life. And, and the way that you approach God is when you understand, I am part of the family now. I am a son. I'm a daughter of God. He loves me. He cares for me. He paid an incredible price for me. So he gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed, Paul says, as a herald. He proclaimed this. And as an apostle. He said, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. What is he not lying about? That God had called him to this. And indeed we know from reading in the book of Acts. When when Paul got saved right away from the beginning. God spoke to him and said. You are going to be my uh, ambassador to the Gentiles. To those who are not Jews. To people who don't understand all this stuff. You're going to take this message of grace. And take it to people who are completely and totally clueless. And that's what Paul did. And, and, And that's when Christianity spread like crazy throughout the known world. Um, he says, uh, he's, he's encouraging. Now remember, he's writing to Timothy. He's a young preacher and he's giving him bits and pieces of advice on how to conduct uh, church and, and their affairs in, 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 uh, during this time. And uh, so he's going to go through, first of all, he talked about the prayers thing and how to pray. Then he says in verse 8, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Sometimes people say, why do you guys... Lift your hands in prayer. Why do, where, where do you get that from? The Bible. Because that's the encouragement. And the Bible says this in several places. That coming to God to lift our hands in thanksgiving to God. Um, and, and you know, it, it takes a little while to get bold enough, I think, to do that. You know, at first you just sit there and stare at everybody else raising their hands. Then you kind of, you know, half-mast. Then you kind of, you know, comb your hair a little bit, you know. And, uh, then you realize you're not going to explode and you finally get there. You go, yeah, hallelujah, okay? And uh, why with the raising of hands? Because it really is a natural expression of enthusiasm and of joy. You say, I don't believe that. 
go to a Packer game. And there are people just, hallelujah! Woo! Raising their hands, jumping up and down. You can go to any kind of sporting event, all kinds of things in life. That people, you watch them, they're, you know, it can be a race car, whatever it is. Woo! Hands go up and it's just a celebration thing happens. And, and then they come to church and say, well, you can't do that. <laughs> because we got this religious thing on us, you know, that is just out of out of whack. The truth is, raising your hands isn't really uh, something that's unusual. It is un- in churches that if you've been raised in churches, they never did that. The truth is, in normal human expression, when you're getting together and you're celebrating, it's a natural thing for hands to go up because they go up all over our culture all the time. Not always in churches, but all over the place because it's safe there. What's unusual is that people in so many churches they don't feel it's safe to express yourself to God and certainly it is and this is one of the scriptures that you point at where you say this is what Paul said Paul says people everywhere should lift their hands to God without anger without disputing just trusting and celebrating God in their lives okay all right now verse 9 we're starting starting to get into some touchy territory here now all right uh and it gets worse. <laughs> this is just the beginning. He says, I also want women to dress modestly. Now that we get. You know, dress modestly for crying out loud. Now, I never have quite understood women who dress in such a way that all you do is, you know, stare at them. And, and they, you know... I don't know. I'm not a woman. I don't know. I don't get it. I I see these women say, don't they realize what this is doing to every man within a hundred yards? And, uh, uh, you know, some women say, no, they don't get another. Yes, they do. They know what they're doing. They love every second. I don't know. Who knows? I'm just saying, he's writing to people of faith, don't dress that way. Okay? Um, I've heard the counter to that woman say, well, I should be able to dress however I want. Whatever the guy looks like, it's his own problem. Okay, but the Bible says, dress modestly. Don't dress in such a way that pulls all kinds of attention to your hoochie-coochies and all the other things that you got going. You know, I'm just trying to be open with you here. (laughs) You know, all the guys know what I'm talking about, you know. You feel horrible. You know, you're you're, just, hi, how you doing? I mean, hi, how you doing? You know, I mean, just... You know, I know we shouldn't, but give us a break already. All right, don't dress in such a way that it makes it hard for guys to keep their heads in the right place. So he says, I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety. And then he gets very specific, and this is usually where we get into trouble. because And you have to assume that, uh, the, spe- the specificity of which he's speaking has to do with their culture. Uh, and, and I was reading some uh, commentaries and stuff along this line. Apparently, because, well, let's go on. Not with braided hair or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now you think, well, well then Christian women shouldn't ever braid their hair. Well, no, I, I don't think that's really what he's talking about. I think in this culture, because what, what a lot of this, the historians say is that the prostitutes is one of the things that they would do. Is it with braid their hair and wear things in such a way? And he said, don't do those things because people are going to confuse you with the wrong kinds of people. Uh, the attitude really is about modesty, not whether or not um, you 
literally braid your hair or whether you wear pearl. I mean, you can wear stuff that looks nice in our culture, you know, but then there's stuff that, you know, just pulls attention. Somebody, you know, wearing just decked out and your eyes are blinded because of all this bling on them, you know, that, that's pulling a lot of attention to yourself. Um, I think that's the kind of things uh, that he's talking about. Now, for, for years and years and years, churches have used the literacy, the literal wording here, and forbade women to braid their hair or to wear gold or pearls or nice clothing and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I just think they kind of missed the point. You know, they, they'd be really hard on women you know, against, uh, I know when I was growing up, um, especially in very fundamentalist churches, they would forbid women to wear makeup. And you guys remember those days? Anybody? Yeah, some of you. Uh, you know, they wouldn't, they, they would think that, that wearing makeup was a sin and stuff like that. And I certainly don't think that at all. I, you know, please wear makeup. And uh, <laughs> not trying to be cruel here. I just, I for one appreciate it. I, I think it's a lovely thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just interesting. I don't know. Little boy asks his dad, he says, well, why do women wear makeup? And he said, well, because uh, women were born without faces, son. And they need, they need a face. You know, I don't know. Whatever. I, Billy Graham once said, you know, if, the, if the, the barn needs painting, paint the barn. It's okay. There's, there's not a problem with that. Uh, so I, I don't think that. I, I think the, the essence of what he's talking about. And again, there are people to this day who would take a scripture like this and think that we're all wrong because women fix their hairs up and they wear nice things and this is against the Bible. Again, I don't think that's what he's talking about. The, the essence is I want men, women to dress modestly and then he starts, t- and, you know, and de- without, with decency and propriety and then not, and these things that were considered in his day, obviously not to be modest, not to be decent and not to be appropriate. Does that make sense to you? He says, do it this way, not like this because obviously, again, in our culture, uh, this, this is not a, a big deal. Um, so anyway, he says, but rather women should dress themselves with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And indeed, ultimately, that's the most important thing. Uh, you know, be beautiful on the inside is really what he's saying is more important than, than how you look on the outside. Again, look nice on the outside. I have no problem with that. I think, I think we shouldn't look nice. I think our women look incredibly nice. I think this church has the most beautiful women in the state of Wisconsin, quite frankly. I just, you're, just, you're all gorgeous. I, I'm surprised there aren't more men that come to our church, quite frankly, because we're full of babes in this church. And I think it's wonderful. I love it. I think it's great. Just, you know, don't go hochi mama on me. All right. Now, okay. You think that one was hard? Look at the next one. This is really getting nasty now. Oh, and, and before we read this one, <laughs> go go to Second Peter. Go to Second Peter. I, I, Peter helps me out here because uh, there are some things I read about Paul, and I just I just my eyes cross, and I I don't quite get it. Uh, look at a Second Peter. Where is it? I presume it's right after First Peter. Where am I? There's Second Peter, uh, the third chapter. Verse 16. He's talking about Paul. Well, back up and we'll see that he's talking. Target verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Certainly, Paul wrote a lot of letters to the church, as most of the New Testament was written by Paul. 
but then he says he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And then he says this. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And, and they really are. Now this next one is, is more of a cultural race, uh, wrestling. But as we study the New Testament, you will from time to time hear me just say, I have no idea what he's talking about. I just, I don't know. I can tell you what I think he's talking about. I can tell you what the uh, great learners of our day, and, and as, as I study what they think, but even when they're explaining what they think it is, they're admitting they don't know what it means. And I don't feel bad because Peter says, I don't understand what he's talking about. Okay? So we're in pretty safe company here. What he does say here is, uh, even though they're hard to understand, ignorant and unstable people distort these things as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. And now that's where you can catch it. When people start taking a, something in the New Testament, it's kind of a weird phrase that Paul's talking about. You're not sure what he's talking about. And then they create some doctrine or some bizarre thing from it. They start distorting the picture of Christianity with it. That's when they're getting out of line. I think when you run into a scripture and you don't know what it means, I think we should just be big enough boys and girls to go, you know, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, if, if you think you can figure out, great. I'll tell you what I think it is, what some of the teachers say that it is, whatever. So, he definitely had some things that were a little tough for them to handle. Now, in that context, let me get back to where we were. And uh, um, he says in verse 11, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be Silent. That's not a popular verse with Gloria Steinem. All right. Now, think culture for a minute. Imagine we are in Iran and we are believers in Jesus Christ. And you want to fit into that culture. Remember, this is Eastern culture that these guys lived in. You've got to take a picture of that. So we take you to the east. And you can see that trying to keep things in a cultural setting was positive for the church. If you go to Iran and you ladies just walk around like you are right now, which I think is totally appropriate, you have a good chance of getting yourselves killed. Because that culture will not tolerate it. Women are to be heard and not seen they are to be dressed extremely plainly. What did I just say? Seen and not heard. They're to be invisible. I can hear you. Keep talking. I know you're in here. It's been a long day. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> um you know, the whole burqa thing, or at least cover your heads covered. In fact, there's a part in the place in, in the Corinthians where it says women should keep their heads covered and stuff like that. Um, a lot of this, I really believe he's talking culturally. Paul often referred to, we need to live in a way that makes the gospel look as appealing as possible to the people with whom we live. This is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. I promise you, if Paul were in the United States of America today, I don't think he'd be saying these things. Because in this culture, it makes the gospel look poorly. Does that make sense to you? It, it, you know, people just, they, they reject, there's people who flat out reject Christianity just because of some of these things that Paul said. 
you know. But it's it's a cultural thing. And the church, I think the church needs to explain it in that way. Clearly, women were allowed to teach because we will read in Second Timothy that the people who taught Timothy was his mother and his grandmother. Okay, and and there were even deaconesses. The Bible talks about and stuff like so. I I don't know exactly what he saw. All I know is the same thing when he talks about slavery, which we'll run into this, you know, be a good slave and all that. Is he endorsing slavery? I don't think he's endorsing it. He's dealing with the culture in which he lived. Now, there are some people who really do not believe that. They believe that literally this means in spite of any culture, this is the way it should be and they do, and they never allow children, or women to have any place of authority uh, in church, uh, ever speak, ever teach, ever do anything like that. Um, I can respect them for that. I think they're mistaken. Uh, but that, that's all I can say. You know, I mean, We have good hearts and we're not trying to <clears throat> disobey the Bible. I just honestly think that he was talking about all of these things that we just read very much in cultural terms. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, and someday I see Paul and he can slap me upside the head. Why didn't you what I said? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, and, and I got eternity to work that out with him. All right, so, now, then he goes into a spiritual explanation for why that approach to culture is biblical. Again, well, let me just read it to you. He says, uh, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Okay, so that's one reason. And secondly, Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay. I don't understand this thinking. I, I really don't. I, I, I'm just being honest with you. I, I think, um, because when, when I see this, and don't worry, I'm, I'm not fighting the Bible here. I'll, I'll concede to this in just a minute. I'm just saying, for, for my face value, I think, okay, the woman was deceived, and then the man. Well, I can see the woman. What was his excuse? I'm not trying to be disrespectful here. I honestly, I'm thinking, okay, the woman, you know, the Satan, you know, comes into this serpent and comes in and starts reasoning with her and lying to her and tricking her and turning God's words around and then she took it. What was Adam's excuse? She just said, here, eat it. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know. I, but... Clearly, we don't understand all that was going on back. I honestly, because the Bible's very clear, it was because, and the punishment on the woman was harsher than on the God. Something happened here. Obviously, we're not getting all the details. When he reads it like this, I go, I don't quite understand this, but it just is what it is, you know. Um, we do know this. One of the punishments handed down to men, you know, is that they would have to work and the sweat of their brow and things would work against them it wouldn't come easy women would suffer in childbearing and stuff like that and and basically said that uh that the man uh, she would her desire would be for him and she would be under him um and that's certainly a, a biblical theme all the way back from the beginning up till now now what does that even in our homes we teach uh and we do hold on to the new testament standard that the man is the head of the home and that the uh, that's the way God set the whole thing up. This doesn't mean a guy can boss his wife around and be a big fat stinking jerk, in my opinion. And I think spiritual authority uh, is one thing, how you work out in, in your home. I mean, we don't really have time to get into all of this. But anyway, 
this is just what he says. He says, you know, don't let them teach. Don't have anything. I think it was very much in their culture. And then he says, you know, after all, it was a woman who sinned first. And okay. Uh, interesting because later in, in uh, Romans, he says that sin entered the world through Adam. Which would imply that if he would have stopped, it wouldn't have entered the world. If he would have stopped with Eve and said, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, and let God deal with her. You know, do over. I don't know what they would have done, you know, but it's just not the way it turned out. All we know is that once Adam took it, at that point, sin entered all of mankind. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. So anyway, um, moving on. Uh, but he does give this. He says now, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Again. Lots of guys I'm, I'm looking at, or, you know, as I'm studying on this, uh, they don't really know what he's talking about. Some say that what, what I think more likely is, look, you know, woman, uh, she has to suffer because of a result, great pains in childbirth, but that God will protect her through that. Uh, and, and remember, this is 2,000 years ago. There was a lot of more, it was a dangerous thing for a woman, quite frankly to get pregnant. A lot of them didn't even survive that. And, and I feel what he's talking about is, you know, just do the right things, be a woman of a good heart, and God will keep you safe through this process. Some of the more bizarre interpretations is someone said, uh, claimed that a woman has to bear a child or she can't be saved. Which I think is really odd. So if you haven't had a baby yet, you better hurry up because you don't stand a chance here. I mean, that's... I just think that's a bizarre thing. And there were some other bizarre things. I just, I just don't... I think that's what he's talking about. Um, it makes sense to me. Go with what you want. I'm just telling you. Uh, I think what he's saying here is because of sin, this is what happened, but God will, will, will keep you safe even through childbearing if you continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That's how I view this. It is a hot issue, particularly in our culture. And I'm not trying to dismiss the scriptures here but honestly in my heart of hearts I believe they were talking about cultural issues that's why in the other places like I said should have their head covered I, actually do you remember it, it used to be common that women did have to have their heads covered in churches how many were raised Catholic a long time remember all the women they had to have why because of that scripture you had to have your head covered you know then at some point they realized I don't think that's what he's talking about and they kind of let up on it and everybody else probably pretty much did too but uh, if you get really really literal on this and you think no this applies for everybody all throughout all cultures then okay then we'll just have to disagree uh, if, if you do then we also need to start slavery again is my argument because he also talks about that okay it's got to be in my mind cultural Paul went out of his way to relate to culture do you remember when he spoke uh, he was in Athens and uh he walked into this place and there were gods all over the place. They had gods of this. They had so many gods they didn't know what to do with all these gods that they were making up. And they found this one place called the, the, the altar to the unknown god. You remember the story? If you don't, we'll get there when we look through the book of Acts. But he gets up there and he says, I want to preach to you about this unknown god. And he starts preaching to them in a way that was so culturally acceptable to them. I mean, was he really preaching about the creative universe as the stone? You know, obviously not. But it was a point of reference. And he never quoted scripture to them. He quoted one of their own prophets to them as he was trying to relate to them. You know, that would be like saying, you know, 
uh, trying to witness to someone and using uh, some lyrics from, you know, some rock band. And say, you know, you know that band said such and such. You know, and, and, and stuff that they could relate to and stuff. I mean, he obviously was certainly, and he talks in other places how I become all things to all men so that by any means I can save people. That doesn't mean he compromised who he was, but he tried to relate to people in the ways they can understand. Something that's important for all of us is faith. People of faith. Try to relate to the people around you. Doesn't mean become like them. Doesn't mean do the wrong things that they're doing, but carry yourself in such a way that people can relate and understand who you are and what you're doing. Um, Quite frankly, the way that we do our worship services um, here at, at Celebration Church is very much influenced by where we are in the country. We kind of mix, if you notice, some traditional elements with some more uh, free elements and stuff like that. If we were in the Bible Belt, we probably wouldn't worry too much about that. You know, we just go crazy and boogie down for Jesus. Because it's more acceptable there. You do that here, people won't come to church and walk and say, well, you guys are all crazy. It's one of the reasons why Bible Belt churches haven't done very well in the North. Because they try to replant culture along with Christianity. And I think Christianity is greater than culture. And it can adapt. And God can handle cultural changes. And, uh, and again... If any of you became missionaries to Iran or Saudi Arabia, I promise you, you would adapt to culture very quickly for fear of being killed. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. So, does that make sense, everybody? All right, don't stone me on this anyway. All right, now he goes on, chapter 3. He's talking about leaders in the church. Interesting stuff. He said, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, this is a a spiritual leader in the church. Some translations, I think, even use the word bishop. Um, But, you know, it wasn't like the one bishop over, you know, this gigantic area. These were guys, the leaders in the church. Um, If you have your heart set on that, uh, you you desire a noble task. This is a good thing to have your heart to say, you know, I want to be a leader. I want God to use the gifts that I have. It's not pride, it's not arrogance, it's not out of line um, to say, you know, I, I, I feel like God's put in my heart to be a leader in the church, a leader in the kingdom of God. You need to approach it humbly, but, the, but it's a good thing. So anyway, he gives to Timothy some rules on how to know who these guys should be. He says, now the overseer, the spiritual leader in the church, pretty much what we would call a pastor, or, or maybe at least an, an elder, spiritual leader in the church, um, must be above reproach, okay? The kind of guy who can uh, uh, withstand scrutiny. You look at his life, see what he's really like, what you know, what's his history, that kind of thing. He should be the husband of but one wife. Some argument here. Some think he's saying one wife at a time. Uh, I'm just telling you. This, and and, and uh, um, quite frankly, that's what most Christians today believe. This is what it means. One wife at a time. In other words, you can have had a wife and she died or maybe divorced and remarried and stuff like that. Um, you know, but what they believe what he's speaking against is polygamy. One wife at a time. Uh, others think that it means just one wife period. And that if you've ever had a wife and then for whatever reason you have a second wife, that this disqualifies you from being a pastor or leader in the kingdom of God. I know of denominations like that. Any of you aware of that? There's some denominations. You, if you're in, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, if you have, now this is your second wife, you can't be a pastor anymore. And they point to that particular scripture. 
um, the way that we view it is uh, more a matter of polygamy. You know, you come to me and you've got two or three wives back home. We probably won't have you as an elder in the church. All right. Temperate, temperate. Keep yourself under control. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not volatile but gentle, not an angry guy who was blowing his temper, knocking everybody upside the head, not quarrelsome, not always wanting to argue about stuff, not a lover of money. Money, 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 money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Now, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He goes on, he says, he must not be a recent con- convert. In other words, if, if you just came to Christianity last year, you probably shouldn't be an elder in the church. For obvious reasons. I mean, you're, you're just new at this. Uh, if, if that happens, he says, it's essential to become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. What was that? The, ju- the devil got so full of himself. You know, I'm so beautiful, I'm so great, I'm so wonderful, I know so much. You know, you start thinking in those terms, you're, you're heading in the wrong direction. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. That means people who are not Christians must think highly of this person. What is your reputation among outsiders? Do they think highly of you? Do you have the kind of life that people can respect in you, even though they don't believe in what you believe? And why is that? So that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Uh, and they go on. He says, now deacons. Now this is not the pastors or elders, but these are those who assisted in the church, also leaders, pretty much had the same rules on them. Likewise, they're to be men of worth, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, not, not the money deal. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must... First be tested. That means you bring them in, you grill them, find out who they are, where are they from. You just don't let somebody in. You look at their lives. If there's nothing against them, then then they can serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives would be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife. Okay, Must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, now, a lot of scriptures there. Let me, let me give you my take on this. I think most churches in America do not pay attention to this at all, to our own hurt. There are men that I am well aware of. Some of them are pastors some of them are elders and deacons in churches where they do not measure up to these standards in any which way, shape, or form. They might be great teachers, might be charismatic guys, but the bottom line, their home life is hell. They, their marriages are a disaster. Their children are hellions. There's a phrase for them called PKs. Preacher's kids. It's a phrase to describe the children of pastors who are pretty much demons from hell. And they do the most unruly and undisciplined things and nobody in the church ever does anything to these men. And they leave them in positions of authority. And I just think it is an outrage 
and it is a disgrace to the kingdom of God. And it, we, we start playing games. There's no wonder that so many homes in churches are nothing but garbage because the leaders' homes are nothing but garbage. They're just following the, the pattern that's been set for them. Uh, they can divorce their wives. Who cares? No big deal. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Totally upside down. Now, there is one thing here, and I'm going to speak specifically of evangelical churches. I'm not sure what we are anymore. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a new movement of churches, I think, that really describes who we are. They're called emergent churches, where we, we're not just buying into a culture set up by some denominational things uh, of the past. We're trying to, we're taking some of the old, some of the new, trying to, the, the very kind of approach that we're doing. But evangelical churches, one of the things that they just really have a cow about. We've talked about this before, and some of you disagree with me, and I appreciate it. Some of you have the the guts to come and tell me. Look, I disagree with you. I love you. Okay, go away. But, uh, you know, we get along fine. But it's this whole thing about alcohol. They do not believe in any way, shape, or form that a Christian should ever touch a drop of alcohol. Period. 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 Never, 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 never. And these men and leaders in the church live that way and they're part of these denominations that the only way they could even become a pastor is they have to sign away their soul and promise they will never ever 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 touch a drop of alcohol I don't know how they explain away NyQuil and stuff like that that they take which is pretty much a hot toddy is all that is <laughs> look at the ingredients on that stuff like yeah you know that's that really good praise God yeah, I love that medicine yeah, it's called alcohol alright with some decongestant in it that's about it um, but uh now, now check this out. What we say today is your kids can be hellions. Your wife can hate you. You can totally ignore your family. But as long as you don't touch a drop of alcohol, you can be a pastor. When the Bible teaches, it's okay. Just don't get drunk. Don't be given to much wine. Some, And there's a lot of people who teach that in the Bible, well, what it means in the Bible when it says wine is it means grape juice. Well, that's weird because I don't see how much grape juice you got to drink before you get drunk. But that, that's that's a, a very twisted thought to me. Don't be given too much. Why would he write, don't be given too much grape juice? What would he care? Afraid you're going to stain your tongue? I mean, what's it? It was wine. So what we say is, you know, as long as you don't touch alcohol, but the Bible doesn't say that. What it says, they've absolutely reversed the Bible. They've taken the things that don't matter and ignored them the things that do or things that don't matter or do matter and ignored them things that don't matter made them, made them holier and tried to raise them higher. We've taken the Bible and we, we've set new standards and ignored other standards. And I think it's just a shame. Some of the great uh, I mean they're not great leaders to me. I certainly don't view them in those terms even before all this happened. But uh, if, if you follow much of uh, Christian television at all. There's been some great leaders lately who uh, have been right down this, this very path. There's one lady, she's, she's a prophetess. I'm a prophet. I got a gift of God. I prophesy, I prophesy, I prophesy. And it's common fact reported in the newspapers that her and her husband beat the snot out of each other in the church parking lot. And then she divorced him. But she's still a prophetess. Praise God. Hallelujah. hallelujah. No! No, 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 no! You have been disqualified, in my opinion. 
I think the Bible says that. Another great preacher's on TV. Wonderful. They stood up in front of their congregation a couple of months ago and said, well, you know, we just... We're, so we're just we're getting a divorce, but we're going to keep serving Jesus anyway. And I mean, no biblical reason for it. They just can't stand each other. But they go on through their ministry, and people keep sending in checks. And I just, I just, what Bible are you reading here? I don't understand this. This, and then we wonder why the church has so many problems, and people live such a lower standard because of what our leaders are doing. Man, if you can't live, what he's trying to say here, guys, if you can't live this at home. You're full of baloney. You've heard me say this over and over again to you. If I can't live this at home, i got no business being up here talking to you. Even though I know it. I think I could become a complete slime bag and an adulterer and I would still know what I know. It's not going to change what I know. It's true. I could be committing adultery and getting wasted on weekends and stuff. I could still get up here and preach and teach to you because I know the Bible. But if I do that, I have no business being up here talking to you about the Bible. The church needs to have some standards. And that's what he's saying. And and look at how much of it he ties to the way you live your life and how your kids respond to you and how you respond to your children. I knew of an elder in a church in Stevens Point. The guy spent, he literally lived at the church. Didn't want to stay stay at home. Literally, he'd stay sleep at night at the church. His kids couldn't stand him. His wife tolerated him, but there was no love or compassion there. Everybody knew about it. The pastor, everybody knew about it. But he stayed an elder in the church. And it's just outrageous. And that that kind of thinking has got to stop. We have got to get back to where we live this stuff. And if we can live this stuff, and it's not only talking about your family, but also around the world around you. If you're the kind of businessman, everybody thinks you're a slime bag and you've got a bad reputation in town, you've got no business being an elder in the the kingdom of God. Why? Because now you have a bad reproach. What is he saying? It's not just what you know. You've got to live this. And if we put leaders in the church who are living this stuff out, this has a positive effect on everybody and it advances the kingdom of God and encourages this kind of healthy relationships throughout the whole church, right? All right. Hallelujah. All right, there you go.